This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in June. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writing an ethical will, a document that includes stories and reflections about your past, is a nature tradition. It can include joy and regrets, and ultimately becomes both a way to remember a loved one who's gone and a primer on how to live life, uh, live a better, happier life. Rabbi Steve Leader has helped thousands of people write their own ethical wills, and in his new book, For You When I'm Gone, he helps us write our own. Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of Wiltshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, and after receiving his degree in writing and graduating cum laude from Northwestern University, spending time studying at Trinity College, Oxford University, Leader received a master's degree in Hebrew letters in 1986 and rabbinical ordination in 1987 from Hebrew Union College. And he's the author of five books, including uh, the recent The Beauty of What Remains and the current For You When I Am Gone. Uh, Rabbi Leader, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you today. Uh, so I understand this uh, book grows out of the, the last book, The Beauty of What Remains, where, you, where I think you talked about uh, uh, death and issues relating to death, right? Yes, it does. And, and surprisingly, uh, to me at least, I put just a couple of paragraphs in that book about this ancient idea, a thousand-year-old idea, creating an ethical will for our loved ones. And that was the thing everyone wanted to talk about on the podcasts and the morning talk shows and the radio shows. And I realized that despite my being really very familiar with the idea, almost no one in this country has heard of the idea or created an ethical will for their loved ones when they're gone. We all have an estate plan and a will that divvies up our stuff. But frankly, that matters very, very little compared to our life lessons and our and our love and our legacy. So that this is about bequeathing what really matters to the people we love and, and living our lives to make that a real gift. You write in the book that uh, words are the most powerful thing we can leave our families. Yes. Now, uh, something interesting. The word in the Hebrew Bible for word and the word in the Hebrew Bible for thing the same word. Hmm. In other words, you cannot differentiate, which means from a from a psycholinguistic standpoint, words are real. Words are tangible. Words are concrete. Words create. Words destroy. Words build. Words demolish. And and if we understand the real power of words then we will understand that our words, not our stuff, is what we should be bequeathing to the people we love. You know, believing that dividing up our stuff is going to somehow express the emotional and the spiritual to our loved ones is like handing them a picture of food. It's not going to nourish or sustain them. They need our words, and, and words are the most powerful gift we have to bestow upon the people we love. You're right that, uh, and I think this resonates with most of us, um, our culture tends to try to teach us otherwise, right? The things are the thing. Yes. I mean, it, we are bombarded daily with, a, you know, with messages, every commercial, every movie, every TV show, 
all trying to convince us that what we have is who we are, that net worth and self-worth are intimately related, and, and that somehow our outer lives, our outer material lives, are an inner life. And that's, that's just a lie. It's just not true. And I'm not disparaging uh, things. Like, I like nice things as much as the next guy, but I don't give them existential meaning. You know, one of the most difficult memories that I have in the aftermath of my father's death was walking downstairs into the basement of my parents' townhouse and seeing my father's things in a heap, in a pile on the floor of the basement. Nobody wanted them. Even goodwill didn't want them. And yet we spend our lives working to make money, to buy things, to to give to our loved ones when we're gone, including our money, thinking somehow that that will hold them and comfort them. And it's not true. Mm. What holds and comforts and inspires our loved ones is our story, our legacy, our blessings, our, our mistakes from which we have learned and can teach, and, and our expressions of love. You say that we, we tend to put off these things. Uh, this struck me, this sentence. Um, we spend a good deal of our lives putting off telling our stories to our loved ones uh, in the way this book proposes because we spend a good deal of t- our lives denying death. Yes, yes. We, you know, we somehow think that if we articulate these life lessons and this legacy, it will somehow hasten our death in a superstitious kind of way. Or this is just something we don't want to think about. We don't want to think about the fact that at some point we are going to die. What I have found, however, is by facing that fact and embracing it, it ennobles life itself. It makes life more meaningful and pressure and precious. It makes time more valuable. You know, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. And that's true. That's really true. So going through this process of asking and answering these 12 questions ultimately helps us make more of our lives. And it doesn't hasten our death. It doesn't in a dark way, focuses on death, it focuses us on life and and the beauty of it and the gift of it. So it, it's all a net gain. Uh, but yes, we spend a good deal of time in, in denial of death, and I understand that. Uh, we have to suppress it. We have to keep it in the basement of our psyche most of the time, uh, or we would, you know, not have ambition. We wouldn't have drive. But there is a time in life all of us. And it has nothing to do with our age. When we, in some deep and visceral way, realize, I don't have forever to share my story and to say these things to the people I love, and I'm going to do it now. If I had to summarize the message of this book in just a couple of words, those words would be, don't wait. Don't wait to tell your story. It's never too soon. And it's never too late. Do it. You write poignantly, and, and you quote some others in the book poignantly about um, the fact that we never know when the when the last time is, right? 
When's Absolutely. I, I can't remember who you quote. Uh, you don't know uh, when the last time is that you read a story to your your kid, right? You don't know when the the last time um, you know you give a, a, a take a bath with your brother, right? Uh, and, yeah. and and for you, yeah. you you didn't know when the last time would be that you'd have a coherent conversation with your father, and then the next time he'd be he'd be lost to dementia. That's right. That's right. You never know. And even if you are 100% sure you're going to have the opportunity to say some of these things again, say them now. I, I think the pandemic taught us all that no matter how many times we say I love you and hold and are held by the people we love, it's never enough. It's never enough. Uh, you say, um, I, I think, in part, that this came with ethical wills and and uh, formulating the questions that you that you prompt people to answer uh, in the book came from uh, the many funerals that you've presided over, right? And I guess you yeah. you you develop a eulogy, and so that involves you in conversation with the with the family that survives. Tell me about that. That that's right. My editor asked me, "How did you come up with these twelve questions in this order? They just they just unfold a person's." truth, a person's life story. And I, I somewhat jokingly responded, 35 years and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's how long it took me. Because the, these are the questions that I have been asking families for 35 years when we gather together after the loss of a loved one to try and get to the essence and truth of that person's life and legacy. And, and you know, not the facts of a person's life, because, you know, an obituary tells us the facts of a person's life. But that really doesn't mean very much. The fact that I was born in Minneapolis in 1960, it doesn't tell you very much about me. Where I went to elementary school, you know, where I went to college, it doesn't. Those are facts. They're not my truths. So these questions, each one of them, and in this very particular order, are meant to help the truth of our story unfold. Because that's that's what will enable us to live in alignment with those truths, and that's what will enable our loved ones to have the best of us, the most meaningful of us, when we're gone. Uh, before we get into these uh, questions, I want to oh, get into each of these questions, uh, very impactful. Uh, this struck me, and you um, you sent these questions out to uh, you know, friends and acquaintances, right? And then, then, they, and then you, you have some quotes back from them. They're included in the book. Um, it, it telling them they'd be anonymous, so you don't use names. Uh, but um, Correct. But um, this one really struck me. A, a friend uh, said, I hugely regret never having taken an oral history from my mother before she died at a young age. Uh, and she was an immigrant. And then he goes on to say, my roots are now untraceable. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I often say to people, Tom, I have given up all hope of a better past. Right? We, right. we cannot re-engineer our past, but we can learn from our mistakes to have a different future. And this, this person who, you know, just did not know his family story has made sure by answering the questions of this book that his children and grandchildren definitely know his story, and therefore their story. So th- this is uh, a really, really important opportunity for all of us to grasp. And, you know, I did, you're right, I asked 
all kinds of people to respond to these questions. All ages, um, ethnicities, five different religions, uh, all all genders, uh, all ge- you know geographically dispersed. People who are celebrities, people who are famous for something wonderful, people who are famous for something terrible, people who inherited a fortune, and people who uh, work in 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 nursing homes changing adults' diapers. You know, every every person from every kind of you know, place on the spectrum. And what we find that's so fascinating in the answer to these questions are the great touchstones, the great commonalities of the human experience. Mm. I want to ask you, you, you write, uh, you write about your father's death and you say now your mother has dementia. Um, you say I've changed as a result of my father's death and my mother's memory loss. Uh, how so? Well, Despite having officiated at more than a thousand funerals and stood next to families looking at a thousand dead bodies, you know, it was a vicarious experience for me. It wasn't my life, it was theirs, and I was there to help. But I was a visitor. When I looked at my own father's body, and he and I looked physically almost identical, I was 55 years old, and that was the moment when I realized I am going to die. And therefore, what am I going to do with my life? And I changed my life. My attitude toward money has changed. I, I now am investing in experiences much more so than things. I'm speaking to my children on a much deeper emotional level than I did before. I'm doubling down on friendships in a way I did not before. And I'm, I'm cherishing my work in a way I did not before. You know, um, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. It's true. Mm. But until we really feel that in a visceral way, we don't change our lives. This is the power and the beauty of death. It's not a brush with death is really a brush with life. Uh, so you developed uh, twelve uh, questions. The subtitle of the book: Twelve Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And you say the order is important. Yes, yes. So we begin again. This order carefully honed over thirty-five years. My first question in the book is: What is your greatest regret? Why? Because to answer that question, honestly, requires that we crack ourselves open. It requires humility. It requires uh, vulnerability. And once we're in that headspace, humble vulnerability, then we can answer the rest of the questions with a kind of sincerity and truth that's deeply, deeply moving. So that that's where we begin. Oh, no, read, just and read by this. the way, oh, yes, go ahead. Let, let me just add, Tom. Mm-hmm. What I discovered, which surprised me, was that what most people regret most is not something they did, but something they didn't do. Yeah, that's uh, that was interesting to me, and as you know, as I think about that, that resonates. Uh, I guess most people mm-hmm. say, well, uh, if you if something turned out badly that you did, at least you tried, or right? you were doing something. I guess. Well, not only that, but but uh, you can. We find a way. Most of us, when we 
do something bad, let's say, we find a way with time and 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 conversation and introspection. We find a way to forgive and be forgiven and to move on. But you can't really move on from something you never did. And uh, so that makes even more poignant this paragraph. I'm just going to read this uh, part of a paragraph. The psychologist <laughs> William Marston asked 3,000 people this brief question, what do you have to live for? found that 94% of his respondents were simply enduring the present while they waited for the future. Yes, yes. Ask people what, what do you have to live for, and they'll say something like, well, I'm waiting to pay off the mortgage. I'm waiting for the kids to go off to school. I'm waiting for grandchildren. I'm waiting to retire. I'm waiting to write this book. I'm, I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. 94% of us waiting instead of living. And, and the, the truth of the matter is we do run out of time. And so let's not spend our life waiting to live. And, and answering these questions is the fuel for life the fuel to push us forward into the life, into the truth we we want to live and say we believe in. Uh, you uh, you write about how at, at, uh, I think some uh, youth maybe in your congregation went on a trip to Africa, was it? Uh, she was she was in Latin America. La- oh, Latin America. Yeah. And and you yes. ask her, well, what's different between here and there? What did what did she say? She said people are happier there. They have much less than us, but they're happier. So one of the questions in the book is, what makes you happy? And and what we discover for most people is what makes them happy has almost nothing to do with the material world. It has to do with, with real sacrifice, you know, with really putting your time and energy into, in, into human relationships. We find that happiness is not something experienced alone. Because happiness at its highest level is is shared, and we find that happiness, as I put it in the book, is the fruit of a very slow-growing tree, right? Think of, for example, think of yourself, for those of us who have children, imagine yourself at the wedding of a friend's child. You're, you know, you're glad to be there, and it's nice, but, you, you know, you it's cold, and your feet hurt, and the food's not that good, and you want to get home. Now, imagine yourself at the wedding of your own child. That is a transcendent, transcendent kind of joy. Why? Because you have raised that child with all the sacrifices of parenthood that come with it for weeks, months, years, decades, day after day after day. And that, that is the recipe for joy. Sacrifice is intimately related to love and to joy, and it's all done as as part of a relationship with others. It struck me that uh, several of the people that you, uh, you you asked to answer these questions talk about the, the, their biggest regret is that they were not there to witness big. Uh, you know, big life events mm-hmm. of their loved ones. One one person says, I, I regret that I wasn't there with my mother uh, at the end yeah. uh, to witness that. Uh, n- another, you know, uh, wish I was there for a big event, uh, other big events. Uh, witness. Again, yeah. something they didn't do. Right. 
Um, let's, uh, we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back uh, more with uh, Steve Leader, he is uh, author of uh, several books, including The Beauty of What Remains. Uh, the latest book is For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. He's talking about writing an ethical will and uh, leaving these powerful words uh, behind for your for your family and and friends um 12 essential questions uh we'll we'll get into uh, the other questions when we come back thanks for listening to access u time tom williams we're talking with steve leader he's senior rabbi of wiltshire boulevard temple in los angeles he's a writer uh, he's the author of The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things, More Money Than God, Living a Rich Life Without Losing Your Soul, and bestsellers More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, The Beauty of What Remains, and the latest is For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. He's talking about writing a, an ethical will. Um, so, Rabbi Leader, the next question of the 12 is, when was a time you led with your heart? Uh, I loved this chapter because you uh, you. You, you talk about you. You pulled the veil uh, from from your your parents' lives, your life. I I, yeah. I I love you writing about your dad. You you say growing up there was always an impending sense of doom. That was your father's outlook, I guess. Yes, yes, yeah. My dad. Uh, I I was raised in a very. Um, my parents had five kids before they were thirty. Uh, neither was college educated, and uh, they both grew up quite poor. I grew up in a in a working class family. My dad owned a junkyard, and and the the general atmosphere in my home was was one of danger lurking around every corner. I grew up with a <clears throat> tremendous fear of poverty, um, this fear that that any decision could be the wrong decision and lead to disaster. Uh, you know, my father buried gold coins in the backyard in case we ever had to make a run for it, you know, in case uh, we, and, and my father was not the child of Holocaust survivors, but he was a depression kid and he did grow up on public assistance and, and he never got over that childhood impoverishment. My dad reused his dental floss just to give you mm. a sense of, wow. of, you know, how, how frugal he was. And, and so that's how I grew up. And so, so leading with my heart, was not admired or supported in my childhood or any of my siblings. Mm. And yet, and that's part of why I ask this question, because if you ask most people, when was a time you, you led with your heart, with your gut, with your intuition? When was it, and what was the result of it? Well, let's ask you, Tom, when, when, how did, what struck you when you read that question? When was a time in your life? that you led with your heart rather than your critical, rational mind. Yeah, and for, for like you, uh, one of your answers, I want to have you answer that as well, but uh, when I got married, when I met my wife. Right, yeah. right, and, yeah. and how did that turn out? Oh, uh, well, it's, it's great. It's wonderful, yeah. One of yeah. the biggest things in my life, yeah. Yeah, so when you ask most people when they led with their heart, usually it's, it resulted in a decision that is the most beautiful of their entire lives, or among the most beautiful of their entire lives. In my case, uh, it was when my wife Betsy and I decided to get engaged on our second date. <laughs> we were 24 years old, 
And I just looked at her on our second date. And I said, you know, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I think you're it. Now, the I don't know if I should say this or not was my my critical mind, my rational mind, my father's impending sense of doom. Don't make the wrong move. But I led with my heart, and I said, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I think you're in. And she looked at me, and she said, I feel the same way. And then I said, so are we engaged? <laughs> and Betsy said, Betsy said, I guess so. <laughs> that was it. And and 37 years later, here we are, you know, deeply in love. Uh, and, and I called my parents, and I, I, you know, said, Mom, put Dad on the phone. Now, the last time I said, Mom, put Dad on the phone, too, was when I was 14 and got arrested for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums at Target. So they knew it was a big thing, right? And, and I said, uh, I'm getting married. And they both said, to who? And I said, well, to this girl I met last week. <laughs> and they, were, they went crazy on me. My dad said, Stephen, you're not, you're not getting married. You're thinking about getting engaged. And this time was one of only two times I stood up to my father in my entire life. And I, I won't use the, the word on the radio, but I, I said, Dad, don't F this up. We are getting married. And then my mother jumped in and said, we look forward to meeting her. <laughs> like, 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 you know, okay, <laughs> we're with the program. And, and then when my parents met Betsy, we were, we were taking a walk. And after 10 minutes, my mom leaned over to me and said, Stephen, she's perfect. Hmm. And, and, and so, you know, ask yourself, why is this question important? Because it is, it's affirmative for our loved ones. It encourages them to lead with their heart when they know, when they feel it deep in their heart, that this, this is the right path for me. And imagine the regret in not leading with your heart in a moment like that. Mm-hmm. What if my rational mind, my critical mind, had suppressed my heart in that moment. What a loss. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I don't want to leave this chapter without uh, mentioning, you, you mentioned here in, in passing, uh, that, that your father's sense of impending doom all the time, you you, you think that maybe that's uh, in part behind uh, the anxiety you suffer from. You'd, you've been open yes. with, with this. Uh, why did you decide to, to come forward with this and, and be open about your anxiety? Well, you remember I mentioned about the first question about regret, that we really can only teach if we come from a place of vulnerability and humility and, and honesty, real honesty, real truth. And, and so I decided uh, about a year, less than a year ago now, <clears throat> I've suffered from an underlying anxiety disorder my whole life, but I managed to, to lock that anxiety disorder in the basement of my psyche uh, for most of my life, with just an incredibly brutal work ethic. I was always working or sleeping, and that kept my anxiety locked in the basement of my psyche. And then two things happened, Tom, during the uh, pandemic. The first was the pandemic itself. I think it created a lot of anxiety. Now, four in 10 Americans now suffer from anxiety. But also, I had made the decision 
to help someone privately who I believe deserved a second chance. And it became public that I had helped this person, who in some people's minds had done something uh, immoral and terrible. And when it became public, I had this overwhelming, paralyzing fear that I was going to be canceled by my own community, that everything I had worked for was going to be gone. Now, it was an unrealistic fear because it was based on a, on a real disorder, but it paralyzed me. I lost 10 pounds. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Uh, I, I had nothing but doomsday thoughts in my head. So it, it just flung the basement door open, and my anxiety rushed out into my conscious life. And it forced me to my knees. It forced me to get help. And for the first time in my life, I, I'm properly medicated. And I now live with a normal human anxiety level. And it has changed my life so dramatically, made my life so much better. And I, and I felt that, you know, what is the point of a platform if you don't use it to make other people's lives better, to ease the suffering of others? Really, what is the point if not that? And so I made the decision. I went on the I I do uh, semi regular segments on the Today Show, and I made the decision during World Mental Health Week, which was last October, to go on the Today Show and talk with Hoda and Jenna about my underlying anxiety disorder and and how I got help as a as a way of hopefully encouraging others to get help. And the outpouring was just crazy afterwards, people reaching out to me to thank me uh, and to say, if, if you can, if you, the person who's supposed to know about life and have a spiritual counterbalance to anxiety and all of these things, if, if you suffer, then it's okay for me to admit that I suffer. If you got help, then I can get help. And one of the things I said on, the, on that segment was we have to get past this stigma of, of mental health issues. You know, if I had diabetes, I wouldn't hesitate for a second to take insulin, not for a second. You know, I, I wear glasses because without them, I can't see. Nobody cares. Store-bought is fine. Store-bought is fine. And that's true when it comes to mental health. 125 milligrams of Zoloft changed my life. And I'm not pitching Zoloft. There are lots of ways to do it. But we've got to, we've got to face it and get help and, re- and remove the shame of it all. You know, there's a very powerful phrase in the Talmud. The sages say, the prisoner cannot free himself. That's a very powerful idea. We have to reach out when we're suffering. No one suffers better alone. No one. And if we can just reach out, you know what we find? We find there are a lot of people who will reach back and help lift us from our suffering. And then we can become one of those people. And that, that's a beautiful life. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Appreciate that. Um, so let's go to the next uh, question. What makes you happy? Mm, yes. It's important, yes. right? Yeah. It's really important and there's some common denominators that people don't realize. 
we tend to think of happiness as a kind of uh, lucky accident or, you know, a momentary thing like ice cream makes me happy or winning the lottery would make me happy. But when we really dig deeply into the issue of question of happiness and what makes people happy, what we find is that happiness is actually the fruit of a very slow-growing tree. The things that make us the happiest are the things that we invest the most of our time and energy and heart and soul into, and, uh, and the things we sacrifice the most for are the things that bring us the greatest level of happiness. And something else, which goes back to this idea of suffering being eased by the presence of others, which is that happiness at its truest and highest level is not something we can experience alone. It's a shared experience. And and that too, is a, is a very instructive insight in terms of investing time in relationships, being part of a family, part of a community. That is ultimately the path to the things that make us the happiest. And by the way, the things that make us the happiest are not things at all. They're moments. They're moments with the people we love. Time is the most sacred thing we have. And it is it is the moments we share that really result in happiness. You know, I think about what I have from my father in a a material way. I I don't have anything of value. I I have his old measuring stick, this, this thing that kind of unfolds that used to be in his toolbox because it reminds me of going to work with him on Saturday mornings. It reminds me of you know, stopping at the Town Talk Diner for pancakes and then going to fix things in his buildings and, and then having lunch with him on Saturday. The thing itself, you know what it's worth on eBay? Nothing. Literally nothing. But it represents time with my dad. It represents learning how to fix things with him, both both literally and metaphorically. And And so time is what's really precious. And it's the time we spend in community with other people that really brings us joy. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we come back, we'll get into at least some of these other questions. Uh, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story is the subtitle. The title is For You When I Am Gone, latest book from Steve Leader, uh, who is with us uh, today. We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with uh, Rabbi Steve Leader. Uh, he is author of several uh, best-selling books, including the latest, For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. He's talking about writing an ethical will, something powerful you can uh, leave behind for your loved ones. And uh, it's based around these 12 essential questions. So, Rabbi Leader, I want to skip ahead a bit. We only have about 10 minutes left in the conversation. I'll just read some of the some of these questions. What is your biggest failure? Sure. Uh, what got you through your greatest challenge? What is a good person? All great questions. I want to spend a little bit of time on what is love. Um, and you uh, you write very movingly about, uh, you, about you and your wife, Betsy. 
Um, I'll just read a couple of sentences. Love makes me want to make Betsy laugh and keep her feet warm at night. Love is the way we worry together about our kids, and hold hands under the covers, no matter how stressful or argumentative the day. Uh, you talk about emptying her drains after a double mastectomy, you know, the, the hard times as well as the good times. Yes, yes, yes. So let's use this as a, as a kind of distillate or example of love. Again, a counterintuitive insight from asking the question, what is love? The most intimate thing I've ever done with Betsy was, as I said in the book, emptying her drains after her double mastectomy to save her life. And what do we learn from this? Most people think of sacrifice as a net loss is a negative. You know, she made so many sacrifices. He made the ultimate sacrifice. We think of sacrifice as a negative. But in fact, what we discover is, well, let's do it this way. Let me ask you, what are the two things that mean the most to you in your whole life? Uh, well, family, family top, right? I mean, and what's and what's second? Probably uh, for me, religion, faith. Okay, right now, what are the two things you have sacrificed the most for in your life? Well, probably those two things. Yeah, right now. So, what do we learn? We tend to think of sacrifice as a loss, but it's actually it. It's actually a gain. We, we don't become poorer by sacrificing. We don't become poorer by giving. We become richer in the deepest sense of that word. And it's counterintuitive. Most people believe that we sacrifice for someone or something like a career or faith. We sacrifice because we love. What I discovered in the book is that it's the opposite. We love because we sacrifice. And when you know that, it changes your life. It changes your view of giving, of sacrifice, of commitment. And, and you know, again, to, to go back, since you and I are both people of faith, in the Hebrew Bible, the word for sacrifice is korban. I guess in English I'd spell it K-O-R-B-A-N. It is the root meaning of of the of the words relatives to draw near to gather in to sacrifice they're all related to that same word for the ancients they made sacrifices in order to draw nearer to god to be closer and by the way because these were pilgrimage festivals these sacrifices they were also closer to each other they, 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 it was a communal experience. And so again, we learn that real love is the result of real community and real sacrifice. I want to uh, skip to the last two questions to make sure we do just have about six minutes left. Make sure we get these in. These are, are very powerful. Um, question number 11, what will your epitaph stay, say? Mm-hmm. Yes, 
Yes. So, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. Obviously, I have a very large congregation of about 10,000 people. So I'm in the cemetery a lot. And I'm always struck by this, Tom. Despite the fact that we all have unique lives, we're all unique individuals, you walk through a cemetery and you will see a remarkable uniformity of inscriptions, of epitaphs on headstones. They almost all say exactly the same thing. Because when you have to distill a person's life down to 15 characters per line and four lines total, you are engaged in a very instructive exercise in essentialism. You really got to strip it down to what your life is really about. And what do they all say? Loving husband, father, grandfather, brother, friend. Loving wife mother, grandmother, sister, friend. That's it. Not your net worth, not your zip code, not where you went to college, not your kid's GPA, not your resume, none of it. Now, this is the opportunity. When you when you write your own epitaph in this book, you are simultaneously, ideally, asking yourself, well, if this is what I want it to say, am I actually living that truth? And if I'm not, what am I going to do about it? That's a really powerful question and hopefully an equally powerful answer. I love this epitaph. Uh, One of your respondents said, uh, this would be his epitaph, Richard loved his family deeply and made everyone around him better. That's, That's a good one. Um, I like that there was a little bit of humor in this one. I had this written on my husband's headstone. Later is now. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Well, yeah, like live now. Don't wait. That's right. Don't wait. That's right. Don't wait. You know, you want to know my favorite? Uh, Yeah. So there are some outliers. So there's a cemetery in in L.A. where it's a very small cemetery. It's the most expensive cemetery in the country, I think. And it's where a bunch of celebrities are buried. Marilyn Monroe is buried there and all these really famous people. So Rodney Dangerfield is buried there in a row of super famous people, and his headstone says, "There goes the neighborhood." So you know <laughs> there are some uh, yeah. there are some good ones in there, but that but most one. people's epitaph that they want on their headstone is about that tiny handful of people who really matter, and none of us have more than a tiny handful. Now, can we live that way? Yeah, yeah, that's the key, right? To learn the lesson from it now. Uh, so the final question, what will your final blessing be? I was quite struck by you you, uh, you do some imagining on, uh, for your own funeral, right? You, uh, yeah. you, you'd say you went, uh, you, you went with your wife, uh, bought the last piece of real estate you'll ever inhabit, uh, your grave plots, yep. right? And then you imagined, yep. you imagined your, your own funeral. Tell me a little bit about that. Again, a, a question born of 35 years of gathering together with families and, and walking through this series of questions. And my last question is always, always goes something like this. Tom, let's imagine that your dad was here right now listening to everything we've been saying for the past couple of hours. I mean, literally here, hiding behind the couch. And then we finish, and you guys leave my office. And your dad comes and sits where you're sitting, and he says to me, listen, Rabbi, I heard what Tom and all the kids and everybody had to say, and it was all true. I don't dispute a single word of it, but this is what I want you to say tomorrow to my family. 
and my friends who will be there. You know, in other words, if your dad could get up there tomorrow and say something, what would it be? Because that, again, is one of those questions that that requires a kind of essentialism to encapsulate a person's absolute truth. And, And then again, I would say, when you answer that question, what is your final blessing for the people you love? What would you like to say to them at your own funeral as a blessing? Once you articulate that, live it. Really live it. Don't wait. You say you've um, you, you've done a couple of these. One when you were uh, like in your forties, another one in your yes. in your fifties. And I guess I guess a good idea to update these as you go along. Well, yes, we evolve, we change, our life lessons change, our answers change, uh, and so I I wrote one when I was in my forties, and my kids were very very young, and now my kids are thirty and thirty three years old. So it's it's a different tone and a different depth and a. a uh, you know, it's much more appropriate for for young adults than for young children. I, I think that just like life, our ethical wills should evolve. But I also think it's important that we literally print them out and give them to the people to whom we in, intend them. And and by the way, ours, I published mine in this book, but it's also bound with our estate plan. Ah, so yeah. that so that the kids really do see both together and see them uh, in the proper order of importance. Our ethical will precedes our estate plan and precedes our material will. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. I just, read, yep. I just want to read right a, in there. Yeah, I almost want to read a couple of sentences from your your ethical will. Uh, you you tell your and this is addressed to your children, right? Um, yes. You you say you do your best at work, but work is not the same thing as your life. This is uh, spend time in nature. Don't roll your eyes at religion. Don't suffer alone. Um, you say feel for others. Uh, cherish time. It matters so much more than things. Some 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 great advice there. Um, I noticed in your acknowledgments at the very end of the book, you say, uh, since my own father's death, I've learned how deeply it is possible to love someone, even after, especially after they have died. And that, that's a lot of what we're getting at here, right? Um, you have yeah. a, you have a yeah. quote in the book, I, Isaac Bashiba Singer, he says, the dead aren't gone, they're, they're with us. The dead aren't gone, they're with us. And, and, and he says, every person is a cemetery, meaning that our loved ones who came before us who have died, they're buried in two places. They're buried in the cemetery of the body, but they're also within us. They're buried within us, but in a way that lives. And and every person... Now, by the way, of course, this is also true biologically. Our, our actual DNA is our inheritance from those who came before us. But there's another kind of inheritance that we can hold within us, and it's it's held more dearly and more deeply if we do have their ethical will. But yes, I.B. Singer said, every person is a cemetery. They're all within us. And, and, and therefore, we can be loved even when we're gone. In some ways, I love my father more now than when he was alive, because I have a, a different level of appreciation for the gift of his life. Well, we a uh, good place to, to end the conversation out of time here. Uh, Rabbi Steve Leaders uh, has been our guest. Uh, his latest book, 
For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. He's encouraging us to write our ethical will and uh, and give it to our loved ones uh, you know, before we pass. Um, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, it was an honor to speak with you today, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Maybe you've heard of the Great Saltaire Pleasure Resort as a prime example of Utah's early pleasure resorts, but have you ever heard of Fuller's Hill? At about 1100 east and 400 south in Salt Lake City, this little-known park had a covered dancing hall, ice cream saloon, a swing set, and even a trapeze. Find out more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. As Salt Lake City and the rest of the U.S. industrialized in the late 19th century, Life was changing rapidly. Growing cities presented bad smells and extreme pollution. One way Americans coped with the reality of urbanization was the creation of the Pleasure Resort. Branded as a way to return to nature and pastoral fantasy, Pleasure Resorts were a distinctly urban phenomenon. Fuller's Hill, located east of downtown Salt Lake City, was one such place now lost to history. Started in 1875 on the slope just west of what is today the University of Utah, Fuller's Hill boasted a gorgeous view overlooking Salt Lake Valley for those who chose to visit for only 10 cents. It had constant entertainment, including games both familiar and obscure. One newspaper advertised sack racing, grab log, dipping for oranges, Copenhagen, stilt racing, croquet, and so forth. It promised a strong whirligig for the juveniles, an archery ground, and bows and arrows, and of course, pretty and romantic arbors to promenade through. Perhaps its most famous attraction was the Camera Obscura, a large room with a pinhole viewfinder that allowed visitors to see images projected onto a wall. The first ever in Utah, the Camera Obscura was a predecessor to other entertainment like movies. Ads for Fuller's Hill also boasted the collection of curiosities and the monster devilfish. Apparently a kind of octopus, some visitors offered to buy the devilfish because it was such a large specimen, but the park decided to keep it for themselves, along with their camera obscura, whirly gigs, and ice cream saloon. People trolleyed up to Fuller's Hill for practically any occasion, for Scottish immigration celebrations, school trips, firefighters reunions, and even Queen Victoria's birthday. After receiving special permission from the Salt Lake Mayor to have fireworks there, visitors also went for Independence Day. But eventually, urbanization and population growth caught up to Fuller's Hill. Its magnificent and supposedly safe swing rides and zip lines gave way to the urbanization it was trying to escape. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.